welcome to another MLEX podcast. I'm Sam Wilkin, Brussels Bureau Chief, and today we have a very special podcast to accompany a special report we're publishing today on the GDPR, which celebrates its first birthday tomorrow. With regulators looking to step up their enforcement in year two, there's still a lot of uncertainty surrounding these far-reaching privacy rules. Our report aims to offer a bit of clarity, and with me today are three of the nine contributors. Um, We have Matthew Newman, who is the lead correspondent for data privacy in Europe. Hi, Matthew. Hello. We have Jack Schickler, who is our uh, financial services correspondent here in Brussels. Hi, Jack. Hi. And we have uh, Cynthia Crute, who is an unsung hero of podcasts because she normally does the editing. Um, she's also a technology reporter here in Brussels and data privacy. Uh, hi, Cynthia. Hi, Sam. Okay, so um, one of the biggest issues, I guess, uh, with GDPR is not everyone's entirely clear about what it means. It's, it's one year on May the 25th that it, it came into force. Matthew, what are the areas of uncertainty that are of most concern here? So the special report starts out with what's called the grey areas, and this is one of our reporters uh, based in London who's written that story, Vesela Gladavisha, and she's um, highlighted some important areas such as the legal justification for handling data. Now, if you look at the GDPR, there's uh, six legal bases for handling data. That sounds pretty clear. Uh, Unfortunately, the companies look at this and say, hmm, this is a nice framework, but we don't have the actual specifics. That was done on purpose uh, because the GDPR is, is more of a framework. It's supposed to be uh, able to adjust to technological changes. And one of the vague areas, uh, which is actually quite key for many companies, is this notion of consent. And consent means that when you click on a website, uh, a company asks you, uh, can we process your data? And that seems to be very straightforward, but is it something that a data subject, which is what the, the jargon is in the, in the GDPR, is that actually given in a, in a way that you know, is, is straightforward? Uh, is it um, something that the people understand? Is it, is it transparent? Right. And, and, and this is becoming the most controversial of those six justifications, isn't it? And it's the one that all the arguments are about and these complaints against the tech giants. Um, so some of the others are to do with, uh, you know, the data is required to fulfill a contractual obligation or to, to obey the law um, for, you know, security reasons. Consent is the one where it seems that a company is gathering data that is not strictly necessary for another very good reason, and so it relies on the consent of the people, right? And that's where it becomes this issue of are they informing consumers in sufficient depth and insufficient detail of what they're signing up to? Yeah, I'm sure that everyone who's listening to this has experienced this. You go onto a website and it immediately asks you um, for consent for cookies, for instance. And that looks pretty straightforward. You know, in some websites it may be just one box where you click. Uh, but if it's one box, you actually understand fully that your data is going to be shared with third parties, that this data is, is actually going to be um, a downloaded uh, cookie that's going to track your movements on the web. So you go to another website and they know exactly what you've looked at on the first website. Um, did you actually mean to give consent for that? 
And the other thing is, uh, uh, and this is the, the, the why Google has already gotten in trouble, GDPR has resulted in uh, only one high-profile fine, and that's by the French. And that, that happened in January. That was 50 million euros. Um, everyone sort of jumped on this as like, this is the first of many cases. And what happened with Google is that they thought that they had explained in a very um, detailed, uh, transparent way consent for um, Gmail. And often, according to Keneal, the French regulator, they hadn't. And so that is the, the first fine, 50 million. But that's just the beginning. So if you look at other cases, other um, complaints that have come, they're, you're exactly right. They're all about consent. Yeah, and, w- and we will come back in more detail to uh, to the questions of consent and particularly the cookie tracking um, shortly. But first, I just want to pick up on the Google case because that opened up another um, area of dispute, and that was which national regulator. It's national regulators, not, not the EU or the European Commission, that are in charge of enforcing um, GDPR. So unlike, for example, competition, where you've got uh, the commissioner, Margareta Vestaya, who's in charge of these potentially huge fines, um, for GDPR, it's in the hands of national regulators. And it's not always clear which one should have the, the right or the authority to, to lead the investigation. Um, Cynthia, talk us through a little bit about that debate. Yeah. So GDPR introduced this new principle, this one-stop shop principle. Um, and that's all about cooperation between national regulators, um, especially when, it de- when they deal with cross-border cases. Um, we know that since the introduction of GDPR in May 2018, there have been around 400 cross-border cases, um, and they have to appoint a lead supervisory authority, uh, and that depends on the headquarters of the company. So for most of the tech companies, it's, it's Facebook um, and, and, and Google, they're all based in Dublin, so it's the Irish regulator which means that the Irish will then have an additional workload. So why did the French give the Google a fine if they're based in Ireland? Uh, I, I can jump in here. It's um, Google notified that its main establishment in Europe um, was Dublin. And that was done on May 24th, 2018, one day before the whole GDPR took effect. Well, what it turned out is that when Keneal looked at that notification, he said, well, sorry, Google, you have not ticked off all the boxes that make that a full notification. So your full notification actually came out on January 22nd. So they didn't so get their papers in in time, their effectively. Their paperwork was all messed up. It's, and that it's, cost it's, them potentially 50 million, million Yeah, so it's really yeah. absolutely uh, astounding if you think about it. Um, you know, a company of sophistication of Google got caught up in this. Uh, they're obviously contesting it. Um, and this is this is one of the, the things that people were worried about with uh, GDPR. The, uh, when it was being debated, uh, the UK and the Irish, they said this is going to lead to court cases, and lo and behold, it has. So just to add one more thing for um, Google, um, this January 22nd date is actually key in another case because the Swedish Data Protection Authority actually started a case um, on January 21st so a day before this actual notification or final notification, uh, they said, Google, you are uh, also um, under So there's <laughs> under, also under potentially a debate now between the Swedish and the Irish authorities exactly. over who has, and a, presumably all future cross-border cases, at least uh, related to Google, will go through Ireland now. That is, that is set. Their headquarters is set. 
and, and there is of course still a another dispute on cases that don't involve data from from multiple countries or uh, or from Ireland. In the case of the tech giants, there's a, a fight in Belgium currently about whether the Belgian regulator can um, can lead an investigation into Facebook on the basis of Belgian complaints, or whether that too should should be carried out in Ireland. So there's this whole sort of um, has been fight going on already to the Court of Justice. So they asked for clarification whether it should be the Belgian regulator dealing with Belgian citizens and data um, taking a decision or the Irish. Yeah. yeah. So already we're getting cases referred up to you know the highest authority in the EU. That will at least give us some clarity eventually when that case law starts coming through. Um, and Cynthia, just to pick up on this point of the Irish, so it's it's Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Twitter, Apple, Apple yeah. but basically all the big ones except Amazon, which is in Luxembourg, um, all these sort of big headline American tech companies. And these are going to be the cases um, at first, I think, that get all the attention in GDPR. They're big companies, huge revenues, data-driven business models. What does that mean for the workload of the Irish regulator? Can they cope? Is it is it right that they should have this much power? Well, all national regulators have their own financial means and, and staff. Um, and if you look at the annual report of the Irish uh, authority, they said that they have been increasing their staff already, um, I guess because they, they saw this coming. Um, but I saw one um, deputy commissioner speak at an event in Berlin this week on data protection. And he said they are aware of their responsibility because it sets a president also for the rest of Europe. Um, but they are asking other countries to help out. Um, they're talking to the Austrians and the Belgians and to the French um, because they can't cope, I guess, with all the cross-border cases and the huge workloads. Okay, and there's also a debate, isn't there, um, among some privacy activists about whether it's it's suitable that the Irish regulator should should regulate these giants, particularly given Ireland's sort of cosy relationship with these companies in terms of tax arrangements, for example. Uh, how you know how does the Irish regulator respond to that? Not well, I, I just to point out that in the um, in the special section, we've um, uh, Vesla has uh, an interview with Helen Dixon, um, who does uh, I, I've met her um, and she's spoken many times at conferences. She's the kind of woman who has kind of a steely-eyed look at these companies, and she assures us, and at every time there's a question about this that she's a no-nonsense person who looks at these companies and has no kind of preconceived notions about what kind of relationship they might have with the Irish government or anything. So it, I, it seemed, I think she deflects that uh, criticism quite well, and that's reflected mm. in, the, in the interview. And she's got is 18 cases open at the moment against big tech companies, and yeah, you know, the, those critics who say uh, she's not done anything yet, I think her, her response is, well, it, it's coming. And a year is not long enough to carry out a very big, complex investigation. But, you know, wait and see what they come up with. And that, that first of those decisions are due this summer, so we will start to get more clarity um, fairly soon. And just to yeah. add that the first cross-border fine has already been issued by the Lithuanians and the Latvians. Okay. Yeah. It uh, was this week. I believe, or last week, um, a fine of 61,000 euros yep. for a financial company. Yep. So it so is working. A small apparently. fine, but an important precedent yep. for that cross-border case. Um, speaking of financial companies, Jack, I'm keen to remind all our listeners that GDPR is not just about Facebook and Google, even though that's the, uh, the thing that is grabbing all the headlines at the moment. Um, and Jack, you've written a very interesting piece about the 
the potential implications for the financial services sector. Talk us through that a little bit. Well, uh, this is a regulation that's that's really hit uh, financial uh, institutions for a couple of reasons. Um, they're companies that have lots of data and always have done. And if you've ever applied for car insurance, for example, you'll know you have to give them an awful lot of personal information um, so that they can calculate your premium. Um, and they don't just hold data about their customers, they hold data about people their customers have relations with. So uh, if you make a bank transfer, your bank holds the bank details of the person you're making a payment to. Uh, if, you're, uh, if you crash your car into someone else, um, then their health details will get passed on to your insurer and they'll have to process them uh, in order to, to, to repay them their medical bills. Um, so they hold huge amounts of data, some of it quite sensitive. Um, they're also uh, companies that are very much getting into technology. Um, most people, a lot of people do their banking on an app these days, um, and they're trying to experiment with new ways of doing that. If you can open a bank account online, uh, if you can make payments online, foreign exchange transactions online, all um, using your mobile phone. And uh, so they're keen not to have too many constraints on their ability to innovate. And this is interesting because, I mean, financial services companies and particularly banks, they're only really just getting into the, the app revolution, aren't they? It's only just started to take off in the last year or two. And some of these big banks are sort of trying now to innovate in these data-hungry models. Are, are, are there worries uh, or are there signs that GDPR is making them think twice or, or slowing them down? Well, there's, there's definitely areas where... Um, they're just not sure how GDPR relates to how the financial system works. Um, so one example is the blockchain, the technology that underpins cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. Its advantage is that you can't overwrite the data on it. Once you've made a transaction on a distributed ledger, um, it's there forever. But this flies in the face of, of GDPR, which says you have certain rights to have d data removed, particularly personal data. And no one's quite sure how that interacts. And, and some people see this kind of technology as the future of finance. And yet it's, it's really unclear um, how you're supposed to interpret these EU data rules. And, and there is a worry, isn't there, not just for the future, but also for the present of GDPR potentially clashing. I mean, the one that, that springs to mind is um, money laundering, which in which case banks need to carry out uh, quite, quite invasive checks um, on people who don't necessarily give their consent to that. How does that fit with the GDPR? Uh, well, uh, banks would like the answer to that too. I mean, they have to take undertake very complex risk-based checks. Um, they're all the more keen to do that after uh, billion-dollar scandals of dirty Russian money hit Danske Bank and, and uh, Swedish banks as well. And yet they, they worry that this is going to be a constraint on their, their ability to do that because the GDPR in particular restricts computer-based profiling of customers uh, and it makes, them, it makes it really hard for them to process all the data they have about their customers and decide which of them might be a money laundering risk. And, and this is very, you know, that's um, a very interesting and very clear to me case of how that might um, clash. There's also the question of really sort of day-to-day -day things like you mentioned earlier, like um, the, the processing of non-customer data, for example, which is a basic requirement to carry out any transaction. I'm wondering, could this be a case where, um, where the companies use one of the other justifications? You know, we move away from the concept of consent. Could they make the argument that this is a core requirement of the basic services we provide and therefore we're justified in, 
in using data in that way? Uh, I think they, are, uh, I mean, clearly um, for the case of a bank that's making payments to a third party, for example, uh, that's clearly part of the contract they've been asked to deliver. Um, but there's definitely some confusion in the sector about how far that goes. Uh, it hasn't been made any better by uh, delays by regulators in, in setting out guidance for what exactly the rules mean. Uh, and it is also quite complicated how it interacts with banking specific regulations that mean they have to allow um, startup companies to, to piggyback on their own systems, which in effect means EU law requires them to hand over data. Um, to small payment providers. It's all very interesting. Um, I'm going to swing, I'm going to zoom out now and look a little bit at the international picture. I've got to say, we, we cover in the report in, in quite depth the compliance of American and Asian companies with the GDPR and also um, the efforts of regulators around the world to create their own privacy leg, uh, regulations, many of which are closely modeled on the GDPR. We're not going to talk about that today, partly because we don't have time and partly because we don't have the um, the specialist reporters here in this room with me. Um, but just to note that that is all in the special report. But we can look a little bit across the Atlantic um, with Matthew on the question of American newspapers. This is a really interesting um, sort of vignette about the perhaps unintended consequences of the GDPR. I don't know if anyone has tried going on the was it Chicago Chicago, Tribune, Chicago yeah. Tribune? You log on from Europe and it takes you to a page that says, "Sorry, you can't access this site from within the EU." What's what's behind that decision? I, I personally was uh, really offended by this because I'm from Chicago, <laughs> so I wanted to look at my hometown newspaper, and lo and behold, I can't. And it's just absolutely astounding that a year after GDPR. Uh, the newspaper, uh, which is uh, part of Tribune Publishing, um, has made a very conscious choice not to have access to um, to EU consumers. Now, let's just back up a little bit about um, territorial scope and GDPR, because I think this is an important point for our listeners. Um, this is a source of controversy, I have to admit, because if you are based in the EU, you're covered by GDPR. There's no question about that. No one, no one argues with that. But if you are outside of the EU and you are actively having a website that's, that's, that's going after EU consumers, you're also com covered by GDPR. So the question is, uh, for uh, any kind of website based in the US, is that are you uh, actively seeking uh, consumers in, in the EU? If you're, and if presumably, if you don't have a footprint in the EU yourself, there's a question of who's going to enforce it on you. Can they? Exactly, yeah. So for many um, newspapers, they, they simply did the calculation. They said, well, let's think. If we're um, getting 5% of our revenues or, or less from the EU, what on earth are we... Why would we spend, let's say, $100,000 on compliance costs for maybe twenty, thirty thousand 30,000 in ad revenue. And so they say, well, that's just not worth it. So we're just gonna completely cut them off. Now, when I spoke to experts about this, they said, well, you know, actually, they're being honest. Um, they could just say, we're not going to comply. We're going to um, process all this, this data from European consumers. We're going to benefit from you know having consumers all over the world, and we're not gonna care about it. And you know, that who's going to come after us? 
is, is the EU, are the EU police going to come after us and, and, and crack down on us? Probably not. So instead of doing that, they, they're just honest and saying we're, we're just not going to play that game. And that contrasts with newspapers all over. I mean, I had a quick look around the websites of some sort of Asian newspapers, even quite big ones, and they haven't changed. They don't ask for consent. They still allow me access. It's only in the U.S. that, you know, that a lot of the big titles, I'm thinking New York Times, uh, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, they have a very similar sort of consent gateway as um, the European newspapers do. Uh, and then many others just just don't allow access at all. So they're all engaging with the GDPR. Mm. Um, well, I find really the New York Times is actually a good example of a U.S. company that said, all right, we want to engage, we want to actively seek European customers, and we're even going to go a step further. Uh, we talked a little bit about this whole notion of consent and um, are you actively, are you, are you, are you giving um, knowledgeable consent about it? Um, tracking, ad, like ad tech tracking and, and, and the whole idea of behavioral advertising. Well, the New York Times has decided not to engage in behavioral advertising at all. So if you look on their website, um, you know, they're going to have ads, but they're what they call contextual ads. And so that's, let's say, if you're looking up a, a, for an, a travel article on the New York Times, they would put an ad for you know, a travel, travel uh, website or something like that. Um, they wouldn't actually track what you're doing on the web to later give you, um, send you ads. So that's, that shows a U.S. company that is sort of going above and beyond what one consider compliance and, and saying, like, we really don't want to get in trouble with the, with the EU, we're going to step back and only do a certain kind of um, business that we know is compliant. Um, just to, to point out, um, what is the future of all this? I think that US, more and more U.S. companies will comply, and that's because of a very important piece of legislation that's about to take effect in the United States, which is the California Consumer uh, Protection uh, Act, and that is um, slated to be uh, in, um, uh, in effect in 2020. And that is, I would say, similar in some respects to GDPR. Uh, deals a lot with things like your rights, um, you know, access to your uh, data and that kind of thing. And of course, it's a lot harder for American newspapers or American companies to cut off Californian consumers than it is for them to cut off Europeans. Exactly. And presumably they'd run into more sort of legal difficulty if they tried to do that at all than being, you know, fellow Americans. Yeah. And so to answer your question about other countries, like why in Latin America are there uh, no problems accessing their websites, um, I think the answer is quite simple. Most countries in the world um, have some sort of data protection, some sort of national data protection laws, whereas the United States doesn't. Mm -hmm. So uh, one other uh, potential move in this direction is if there's a federal data protection law, um, you might see more and more uh, U.S. companies complying uh, with GDPR. And, and you have the example of Facebook. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg has said um, repeatedly that uh, he thinks GDPR should be a model um, for his company for the, for the whole world. That remains to be seen whether or not he's actually going to. And that's go, an astonishing go, thing for Mark Zuckerberg to say. If we just, you know, coming back to first principles, this is someone who, you know, a decade ago was declaring that the whole concept of privacy. Was, was something of the past and that people would share everything. And now it's really, you know, going big on this privacy message. 
yeah, and it just reflects all the scandals that have happened in the last uh, two or three years, Cambridge Analytica and Facebook um, being the primary one. I think there's a, a, a deep consciousness in, in most people's, uh, uh, when they, they look at a website, they just no longer have that blanket trust. Some people know implicitly that when they go to a website, they're the customer. They, you know, they're the uh, the data is you know that's that's what they're being mined for, and they're it's a it's a it's a relationship that they accept. Um, I'm getting free stuff. I'm getting Gmail. I'm getting all these great services. Um, I'm getting WhatsApp, instant messaging, but I'm giving my data. Yeah. And then the whole question is, and this is kind of the root of some of these probes in in Europe. Um, is that consent actually free? Uh, is it knowledge? Uh, you know, people really know what they're doing when they click on that one box that says, "You can have all my data." Yeah. And, and we could do a whole podcast on uh, on ad tech and on the complexity of, of consent, and maybe we will. Um, <laughs> for now, I just want to touch on one more point before we close, and that's um, on enforcement, because you know, a law can say whatever it likes, but if it's not enforced properly, then uh, then what really is the point? And, and the national regulators have so far not done a huge amount of enforcement with the exception of some of the examples we've given today. They've, they've preferred to focus on educating companies, helping companies to become compliant. A lot of them are saying now in the second year of GDPR, that's when they're going to really step up the enforcement. Um, the question is, can they do it? Do they have enough funding? Do they have enough knowledge? Um, Cynthia, you've looked into this a bit. Tell us a bit about the challenges they face. Yeah. Um, well, I looked at the different um, annual reports from the from the regulators, um, so their activities from 2018, and um, there are certain trends, um, I guess, uh, happening with all of them. So they all looked at um, informing businesses and, and um, individuals first, rather than enforcing, kind of allowing them to ad adapt, I'd say. Um, at the same time, they're all understaffed because they saw such a rise in complaints, um, data breaches, um, which they saw coming, but still they, um, they don't have enough people. Just to compare Belgium, for example, they have about 60 staff members. Uh, France has 200. The Netherlands around uh, 160. Uh, but the numbers of complaints and data breaches vary a lot. Um, the Netherlands dealt with 20,000, the most, I guess, in Europe, and Belgium around 3,000. So there's lots of differences, but all of them have applied for additional funding. So they asked the, the national governments to increase the budget um, to deal with this um, because they can't cope now. They just um, don't have enough people to start mm. enforcement actions. But the issue is, isn't it, that the government is not obliged at all to, to give them that funding and there's nothing the EU can do to, to make them do it. Not really, although there is one article in GDPR that says that governments should give enough means to uh, regulators to carry out their tasks, but that's still quite general. So that's that is another thing to watch for in the next year. Is you know can the enforcement um, meet the the demand and you know this this huge number of complaints that have been filed and will continue to be filed as the GDPR enters its second year. So that's all we've got time for today. Thank you very much to Matthew, Jack and Cynthia. And um, if you want to read more about what we've discussed here, do go and find the GDPR report on our website. And please also subscribe to our podcasts on your preferred platform if you want to hear more from our reporters around the world. I'm Sam Wilkin, MLEX's Brussels Bureau Chief. Bye for now. <laughs>